So good morning yep. to you guys. Um, hope you're having a really good day. I just uh, I just enjoy when the sun is in and we have a little <laughs> bit of rain and it's below 90 degrees, but that's my preference. My preference is about 40 degrees, but that's not where most of you are, so I don't want to do anything controversial today. Uh, I uh, I think you all have it now. I distributed a little sheet front and back, and uh, I want to draw your attention to that in just a minute. Before we move to um, the treaty with Abimelech at the end of Genesis 21, I want to make this is this is my copy. Oh, okay. So we don't have any more. Oh my goodness! I thought. Okay. Um, but let me draw your attention out in a minute. But I want to say something else about the um, material that's in verse 8 through verse 21 of chapter 21. Now, we covered that, but we didn't quite finish it. That's what I want to draw that final thread to get. Looking at how the Apostle Paul uses this narrative about Ishmael mocking Isaac. Remember, that's what's in verse 9, and then Sarah saying, Isaac and Hagar have to go, and then God approving that, but reminding both Abraham in verse 13, and uh, or rather Sarah in verse 13, and Abraham in verse uh, 18, that out of Ishmael he will make a great nation. Okay, now let's just think about that for just a moment. Ishmael will be the progeny for a great nation, but it's not the covenant nation. Isaac will be the progeny for a great nation, a covenant nation, covenant people, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, what does Paul do with that? It's really interesting how he takes that and does an allegorical interpretation of it. Now, I can't remember when we did this, but we studied the book of Galatians, but it was a while ago. So I draw your attention to that in this sheet here where I just copied the actual text of Galatians chapter 4. And then on the flip side of that sheet that I just gave you, it's just a little chart. Now, I don't want to make a great deal of this, but I do, I do want to draw your attention to a very important point. God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the covenant promise. God made a promise to Ishmael and his descendants, but it's not the same promise. And what Paul does in the passage in Galatians is compares the covenant child with the non-covenant child, who is the child of a slave woman, versus Isaac, who is the child of a free woman. So what does he do? Verse 21, again, I'm reading from the handout that I gave you, the text itself from Galatians. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, Hagar, and one by a free woman, Sarah. By the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But Jerusalem from above is free. She is our mother. And then he quotes from Isaiah. Verse 28. 
Now, brothers, like Isaac, are children promised. You, O brothers, are like Isaac, children of promise. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. What does Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman, her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of free. Now, when you first read that, and you work your way through it, and I read it very quickly, I know that, it's almost bizarre. It's almost weird. It, it just doesn't flow naturally. So what's he doing? The key is the adverb allegorically. You see it in verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. What does allegory mean? Parallel. Parallel? It, it, it's, a, it's a anecdotal illustration. All right. It's not literal, right? It's not a literal interpretation. It's a figurative or hidden or parallel or different <laughs> way to interpret it. Paul never does this anywhere else in the Bible. In his 13 letters, he never does this. But he does it here. And if you look at the chart, which is on the back side of, of your handout, the, the flip side of your handout, handout, is the comparison between these two women, their two sons, and two covenants. Hagar represents the old covenant. Sarah represents the new covenant. The new covenant is associated with promise. The old covenant is associated with enslavement. Now, why does Paul bring this up? Because in Galatians, he's dealing with people who are under the threat of legalists, who are trying to say the gospel of Jesus Christ is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Believe in that, trust in that, plus keep the law. Paul says you can't put those two together. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. Jesus Christ completed the law. So the law, which was good, is now set aside because it's completed. It's gone. So what he says, just like Ishmael and Isaac could not coexist in the same covenant relationship, so you can't coexist with an adherence to a legalism plus the embracing of freedom in Christ. Now, do you understand how he's doing that? So what, what Paul does here is, and it's really important that we don't, we don't miss what he's trying to do and really what is going on in chapter 21. Chapter 21, Ishmael is mocking Isaac. Now, Ishmael is a boy, 16 years old in chapter one, uh, chapter 21. He is a boy whom God has decided, despite the sin of Abraham and going into Hagar and trying to do it his way, God says, I'll still bless him. But he is not the covenant son. Isaac is. And because Ishmael is mocking Isaac, they cannot coexist. 
They cannot live in the same home. Dismissing. He's going to have to go. He's going to have to be away from the covenant son because they cannot coexist. So Paul then says at the end of that little paragraph we just quickly read, you guys do the same thing with the legalists. They can't coexist with you. If they're going to adhere to the law, you have to dismiss them. You have to deal with them forcefully in terms of your churches there in Galatia. So, I mean, it's, I, I, I maybe have confused you in trying to do this, because this is one of the very few times in the whole Bible where whatever the New Testament author is doing, he's taking something in the Old Testament and allegorizing it. He's using it figuratively. It's really quite extraordinary, and I just wanted to make sure you follow what was uh, going on there. Yeah. That's a question of today. Um, I know of a church, it's a Christian church, that is not adding the law to it, but many people call it a legalist mm. church. So what did they say in that regard, Zed? I mean, this is the same thing which you're, I know you're saying about here back then, but, you know, is it just they're just too strict on certain things? And, you know, and uh, but they, I mean, it wasn't for me. I've heard it from other people that say about this place. Well, you're asking it very broadly, so yeah. I'll answer it very broadly because yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know the specifics. But, yeah. um, Tom, generally speaking, and that was certainly true in Galatia, where Paul was writing that little letter to the Galatians, what they were doing is they were adding to the grace of salvation mm -hmm. and saying it's the grace by faith in Jesus Christ that brings salvation, plus it's doing something else. Mm -hmm. So it's adding human work or human initiative mm -hmm. or human um, effort or performance to merit God's extra favor. That mm. is absolutely antithetical to the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So if by legalist you mean this is a church that's adding to grace something else, mm -hmm. adding that in addition to believing in the finished and complete work of Christ, you also need to do something else either for a better salvation or more complete salvation. Mm. To me, that's stepping outside of what the New Testament okay. teaches. Okay. Now, if it is a church that is saying, um, there are certain things you must do to still stay in the favor of God, even though it's by grace through faith, mm -hmm. and you must perform and do certain things, if not, then God does not show you quite as much favor as he does mm -hmm. me, who keeping all these standards and all these rules mm -hmm. and all these regulations. To me, they're also there doing something very dangerous. They're making our walk with Christ a walk that's based on performance, not mm -hmm. grace. Mm -hmm. And like you have a set of convictions. You mm -hmm. have a set of standards that, that you used in raising your kids. That's mm -hmm. a part of your home mm -hmm. and so on. And if you universalize them for every single person that's a Christian yeah. and you're saying, these are my standards, these are my ways, and if you don't follow them, I don't think you're as good a Christian as right. I am. Right. That also is legalism. Okay. And I, it's a very dangerous thing mm -hmm. in, in our faith. When mm -hmm. people add to grace mm -hmm. some human effort, mm -hmm. because That's the right. wonder of what God has done in Christ is nothing more needs to be done. Okay. And so that's, uh, again, I don't know any more of the yeah, specific, but that, I, I mean, I, it's I a very... I know the, I can see what you're saying. Yeah, it's just a... 
I've lived with that all my life, both in terms of, um, and I don't mean anything mm. against my mom and dad, but my mom, mom and dad were extremely legalistic, very, very, uh, they just were sets of stool, rules and standards, and they, if you didn't follow them, they didn't think you were as good of a Christian. Mm. Now, they're, they're beyond that now, praise mm -hmm. the Lord. But that when I was, because I was the firstborn. Mm -hmm. The early church that I was involved in with my, my family when I was a young boy and an early teenager, that was the way that church, just extremely rigid. Mm -hmm. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And if you do do it, you're not as good of a Christian. Mm -hmm. Which, again, I think seems to be outside of what the New Testament teaches. Mm -hmm. What is important is you understand grace which is the basis of everything God does with okay. us and for us. And then, then with that, you understand it's now, my, it's now my responsibility, exercising my responsible freedom to walk in loving obedience with the Lord, but that means I do need to develop convictions. Uh -huh. There are going to be certain convictions I have that don't match up with yours, Tom, uh -huh. but that doesn't make you or me any more or any less a better Christian. Uh -huh. And so... I mean, that's, it's the difference between justification and sanctification. It's, it's just keeping that difference constantly in your mind. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that is a long answer to your question. Uh, now I'm going to be you. quiet. Yeah. Thank you. It seems like the pendulum swung the other way from the 50s. And now it's like you can do whatever the heck you want mm -hmm. to come to church. Mm -hmm. um, is there any, should they rein that in a little bit? Or do you think that that... Well, I mean, that's a, good, that's a good observation in terms of the broad culture and as well as in what is going on in the church. We have, we have swung from one pendulum side in the 1950s when 74% of Americans were going to church mm -hmm. and there was a deep devotion to things spiritual. We had the first president in the history of our country who was baptized while he was president. He added in God we trust. I mean, all of those things that happened in the Eisenhower years when the culture was culturally Christian, whether every single person was a believer or not is not the point. Now we swung to the other side where it's a radical autonomy. You kind of do whatever you want. And many in the church have embraced that. And almost an extreme libertinism where grace means I can do whatever I want. That, I mean, that, that's not what the New Testament. Paul says, does grace, he says this in Galatians, does grace mean I can do whatever I want? No. This is the strongest way you can say no in the Greek language. Meganoita. Absolutely not. But then what he says is, what you decide to do now is walk in loving obedience, in dependence on the Spirit with the Lord. And so that loving obedience, that's the key. What's Jesus say to the guys in the upper room? Since you love me, keep my commandments. And he gives us the resources to do that. And by keeping his commandments, it's not the Levitical law. He fulfilled that. That's set aside. It's his moral law. You still don't have the freedom to lie because you're a Christian now and you have liberty. That You have the freedom to steal. You don't have, I mean, that's not the freedom of Christ. It's the freedom from the bondage of sin. Now the freedom to walk with him in loving obedience. And every one of you around this table knows intuitively as well as biblically Life is much more fulfilling when you have standards and you live by them. 
And God has said, I've created my world to run on certain standards. And I'm giving you the freedom to choose not to walk with those. But in my world, there are also consequences to not following those standards. But I'm paying the price so you can walk with me, i.e. the cross and resurrection. I'm going to put my spirit within you. It's going to give you the enabling power to walk with me. And you will find the joy and the fulfillment and purpose and meaning that comes in life when you walk with me, which is why I created you in the first place. That, that is just amazing. On my Lutheran Bible study this morning, we were talking about cheap grace. I just, I, I just love your explanation. I'm going to re-listen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, good. I mean, it's uh, it's just uh, it's it's the way in which to look at what the scriptures are teaching us about our life and our walk with the Lord. It's not to be confining. It's not to be restraining. It's not to be miserable. It's to be freeing and liberating. And it's because of all that Jesus has done for us. All right. Chapter 22. Chapter 22 is probably one of the most important verses uh, in the entire Bible, uh, chapters, I should say, not verses, in the entire Bible. It, I mean, it is, it is a connecting point to everything God is doing. But there's an important word in verse 1 that I don't want you to miss. After these things, God tested Abraham. If you don't have that underlined, that's a, that, you should underline that. You will not understand this chapter if you don't understand what's going on here. God is testing Abraham. What is God testing? His obedience. Yes, I mean, that, that's not an incorrect answer, but it's more than just his obedience. His faith. His faith. I mean, obedience flows from faith. So he's really touching his faith. Now, now let's make sure you remember the context of all of this. Abraham is 100 years, well, now he's, I don't know, he's maybe 115 years old. We're not exactly sure how old Isaac is in this passage. When Isaac was born, remember this, Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. Remember that? So Isaac is now, we have to assume he's not an infant, he's not a baby, he's walking with his father, the climate, so he's probably a young teenager. So anyway, so Abraham had waited 25 years for Isaac, right? And God finally fulfilled the promise. Now it's 10, 12, 13 years later, or whatever. Now God says, Abraham, I'm reading from verse 1, and how does Abraham respond? Here am I. I actually find that a bit remarkable. But you see just in that, that, that response, here am I. You're going to see it three more, uh, two more times in this chapter. I believe it's three times in this chapter. So what's he saying? Lord, what do you want? I'm available. Not what do you want? 
you know, I'm trying to be a little facetious, but I want to get you, there is this alertness, this immediacy, Lord, here I am. I mean, Abraham's faith is mature, it's developed, it's strong. I mean, after all, he's walked with the Lord a long time. He obeyed him when he was an Ur of the Chaldees and had enough faith to leave and go to Haran. God said, uh, uh, go, and I'll show you where I want you to go. Personally, I don't think I'd have gone. Do you? I mean, I said, okay, I'm thinking about it, but tell me where am I going? I'm not doing that. Just go. Then I'll show you where I want you to go. I mean, just test after test after test after test. So he's walked with the Lord for decades. And this is what he says. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. It's almost like the Lord is sticking that knife in and twisting it. I mean, God, it's, the way God says this, it's, ooh, Lord, your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Now, we know from chapter 21, if you want to take your map, where is Abraham? He's in Beersheba. Right? Now say right. Yeah, okay, I just want to make sure. Okay, he's in Beersheba. He's on the edge of the Negev Desert. That's where he settled. He's, he's, he has a well there. Abimelech recognizes that, affirms that. Abimelech is you know, the guy who had ruled in that area. But anyway, so, I mean, it's, it's clear. This is where he lives. Sarah lives there. His flocks are there. All his wealth is there. And he says, I want you to go to Moriah. Now, Moriah is exactly three days' journey north to the area of Salem. Salem will become known as Jerusalem. Mount Moriah. Now, keep that in your hat for just a minute because you'll see the importance of that at the end of this chapter. So, in effect, he says, I want you to take Isaac, your son, the son whom you love, the covenant son, and go to Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering to me. Now, let's just process that for a minute. Verse 1 told us it's a test. We concluded, I believe correctly, this is a test of Abraham's faith. And I, I mean, I can't think of any more supreme test of faith than to do this with your son. Travel three days north and offer him to me as a burnt offering. Now let's think about that at another level. God is asking Abraham to do what the pagans do. Child sacrifice. Well, uh, not in Ruth, 
But in yeah, well, uh, not Esta. It's a lot of places. There, there are a lot of places in in the Old Testament where you see the ancients offering their children. Philistines did it. The Moabites did it, and so on. So God, I mean, God is asking him. You have to remember what this would. He's processing this. God, you're asking me to do something the pagans do. And one other thing, he's asking him to give up the son that he waited so many years for. Exactly. uh, You're ahead of me. You're great. I mean, that was my next, that was the third thing I was going to say. That's exactly right. In addition to doing what the pagans do, you want me to offer the son I waited for, the son 24, five years, plus I've been with him now for maybe another 10 or 12. I think through that for three days more, right? Exactly. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, then I want to ask God, take, can you just take me and let him live? Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 really, it's really amazing because between verse 2 and verse 3, I would have had a long argument with God. I'd have given him about 17 reasons why I think this is a really bad idea, God. I mean, I'd have offered him theological arguments. I'd have offered him the argument from from all of the pagans around me, plus, Lord, this flies in the face of everything you've been saying to me about the covenant son. But you don't see any of that. As a matter of fact, look at verse 3. It's it's absolutely staggering to me. So Abraham rose early in the morning. I'd have slept in that day, wouldn't you? I mean, I'd have delayed it. I'd have feigned illness or something, but it's just this is this is a man who really, really trusts God. So he rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place which God had told him. Guys, this is un questioned obedience to God. This is a staggering, stunning demonstration of trust. You're going to see something else in just a minute that was a part of this trust. Yeah, I I was just wondering, you know, we may not have this magnitude in our own lives as far as sacrificing a child, but we run across tests. Absolutely. are as real for for us as this was to him and we may not be there and what would you comment on our dialogue with God if in fact talking with God is prayer then isn't it legitimate for us and, and honest and helpful in our growth to have this dialogue with God if we aren't quite there to try to understand and then have peace as a result of this interaction with God, which we can have through Christ. Well, sure. No, no, you're you're absolutely right. The the amazing thing, which I want to comment a little more in a minute, about Abraham is you don't see that. You don't see him quibbling with God, arguing with God, questioning God, which we'll get to in just a minute. But you do see so many places in the Bible where... Individuals do do that. And one of the best examples to go and just look at are the Psalms. Seventy of the Psalms are written by David, so they're often where you see them. 
but a serious questioning about what God's doing. A serious question about, Lord, I've been, I've been asking you for this, asking you about this, asking you to explain this for several years, and you're still silent. Where are you, God? I mean, that's, that's what David says in one of the Psalms. So it is, not, it is not wrong for us. I do not think God regards it as evil for us to question for us to even hurl accusations, if you will, at God. Job did that near the end of that immensely complex book. But God always responds eventually. There's always that response in one way or another. And so we don't know. This is what is absolutely amazing to me about this chapter. We don't know all that is going through Abraham's mind. But Hebrews chapter 11, I believe... It's verse 19 says, Abraham believed that God would bring his son back to life. That's, there is, and that's, remember this is 4,000 years ago. So Abraham had such faith and trust in God that Isaac is the covenant promised son that even if I sacrifice him, as a test of my faith and trust, God will re- resurrect him. That's how strong his faith was. Where is that, Jim? Hebrews chapter 11, I believe it's verse 19, where it talks about Abraham's faith. Remember, chapter 11 of Hebrews is the hallmark hall of fame of faith, <laughs> all the great individuals of faith throughout the scriptures. But I'm saying all that because... This is this is a this is a stunning demonstration of faith. It's way honestly, and I'm I'm being very transparent. It's way beyond anything I would be able to do. If God, if my son Jonathan, was you know say twelve or thirteen, I thank the Lord that doesn't happen. But if God would have said, "I want you to offer Jonathan to me," I'd have said no. Peggy and I waited 12 years for him. He's our adopted. It was hard, Lord, but now you've blessed me. Now you want me to offer him? That's what, that's what Abraham has to do here. So, I mean, you just see this in verse 3. That's why I think the text is doing this with such explicit detail. There's no questioning. There's an unquestioning obedience. He does everything he needs to do to complete in obedience what God's asking him to do. So then verse 4, on the third day, he lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now, I don't know, and this is where I want to get specific. Mount Moriah, I can, if you would go to Jerusalem with me, I would show you exactly where it is. There is a ridge of three mountains in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's 2,500 miles above sea level, uh, 2,500 feet above sea level. And there are three mountains and three deep valleys. Jerusalem as a city is built on the central mountain. And just north of that mountain, on the east of the mount, we call Mount Olives, Mount Scopus. In the center, at the northern end of that, is Mount Moriah. That is also where Golgotha is. It is also where the temple was built. Do you think that's a coincidence? That Moriah, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, tells us Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah. 
And we know where Golgotha is, just in the north side of that. So what happens here is incredibly symbolic of the importance of this mountain. Because on Mount Moriah, what will be offered day after day after day after day, the sacrifices to God in the temple. And 2,000 years ago, what else happens on this mountain? Jesus Christ will be offered on a cross as a sacrifice for the sin of the human race. So what is happening in Genesis 22 is of extraordinary importance for God's entire redemptive plan. Here you see a man of faith doing what God has asked him to do. And it is not coincidental that Moriah, as a mount in what then was called Salem, soon to be called Jerusalem, and what we call it today, which is of such critical importance in God's redemptive plan. It's where the sacrifices of ancient Israel were held, and it's where the sacrifice of Jesus occurred. Really, to you, it was Isaac. There isn't much kickback from Isaac either. No, we, honestly, of the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we don't know a lot about Isaac. There isn't a lot about Isaac. The two most important things are what we're seeing here, and then Rebecca, the choice of his wife, Rebecca which is the next section we'll get into in a minute. How do you plan on a trip to Israel? Well, I've led many, many, many trips to Israel. You just chose not to go with me. <laughs> well, it was a little less than two years ago. I thought I did my last trip to Israel. I'll let you know, Matt, okay? Just don't forget to. All right. Verse 5. How long a trip is it? I'm sorry? A trip to Israel. When you, I mean, I know you did a lot of them. Is it 10 days? You mean, yeah, yeah, it's about 11 days. Okay. The first day you, you basically lose going over, but yeah, it's, okay. it's 10 days. Okay. We see absolutely everything. Okay. I kept. I had one group that went, went there. They were kind of a, an affluent group, and they were looking at leisure. I said, Murray, this is a study tour. It's not <laughs> yeah. a vacation. Yeah. We start in the morning. We go to 530. It's intense. It's study. I give you notes. But you know, when we were all done, they said, that's good. They didn't want to go on vacation and go on the beach and things like that. We don't do that in Israel. You mm -hmm. can, but that's not why I take you to Israel. Mm -hmm. Besides, when you come back, you, you want to... Well, anyway, verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men. Now, it, these are the servants that went with him. Listen, look at, listen to this language. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, or young man, will go over here and worship and come again to you. See that? What's Abraham saying? We're going to go over here. I mean, presumably, they're at the base of Moriah, and they're going to climb Moriah. So you guys stay here. We're going to go worship. We'll be back. Not I'll be back. We'll be back. That's why Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, again, I'm pretty sure that's the verse. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19 says, Abraham had the conviction that God would bring his son back to life. So Abraham is prepared to offer his boy to the Lord. 
I'm, I'm preaching here, so I'm raising my voice, and so I'm sorry. I'll calm down. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood and, of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. He took his hand, in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac, verse 7, said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here am I. See the same thing? He said that in response to God. Here am I. Now he says in response to Isaac, here am I, my son. He, meaning Isaac, said, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham, in his faith, is deferring to God's provision. Isaac doesn't understand it. Isaac, I, I mean, I think we're to infer that correctly. Isaac doesn't understand all that's going on. He doesn't understand the details, but Abraham responds. God, now that phrase, God will provide, is another, you ought to underline that because of something you're going to see later on in this chapter. Yes, whereas the lamb. Yeah. As opposed to an animal or, yeah. yeah. It, well, it's too, and this is intriguing too because it certainly is accurate long before the Levitical Code was instituted that um, a, a uh, what's the best way to say that? A sacrificial system is a part of Abraham's worship. You follow me? That there is this sense, this clear understanding of sacrifice as a, as a, a way of, of, of covering my sin. So he, this is clear, and it's, the language is quite remarkable. Okay, now what happens? Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, meaning they, they climb Mount Moriah, they're on the top, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in the altar, bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, let's stop there for a minute. Isn't that a remarkable verse? Isaac had asked his dad the questions of walking up the Mount to Moriah. Where's the sacrifice, Dad? Where's the lamb? God will provide. And they get up there. Abraham builds the altar, gets the wood. Everything's in order, binds his son, and lays him in the altar. What does that tell you about Isaac? There's a trust of Isaac in his dad, and, and possibly in God. I mean, it's it's just I I just find that equally astonishing mm -hmm. because I know what my boy was like, you know, trying and, and my kid to get them to sit still or anything when they're ten, eleven, twelve, and yell, you bind them and lay them in the altar. Good night. But there's, yeah, I mean, he's 110, maybe 112, something like this by this time. So it's just, the, the dynamics of this are really significant. In verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. That's how the ESV is translated, and that's a good translation. Verse 11, what's the first word? But. It's an adversative, a strong word of contrast. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, 
Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I, a third time. First time, the narrative begins. God tests Abraham. Abraham, here am I. Son asks him, Dad, where's the set? Here am I. Third time, this amazing availability of Abraham. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Why? For now I know that you fear God. Now, I know you know this, but the word fear is a worship word in the Bible. Reverence. I mean, it is. It. I mean, it. It can mean you know, cowering in fear of God, but it's so much more than that. It's a worshipful reverence and awe and devotion and allegiance to God. That's what's. You've passed the test. You are willing to go all the way with God. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, please. It's uh, the significance of. Uh, Angel of the Lord. Did you tell us once that that was Jesus Christ? Yes. Um, it's usually, uh, there's a theological word for it, a theophany. Uh, but it is a, an appearance of uh, the second person of the Trinity. Yeah. And I, I think there's there's no reason that we shouldn't conclude this is the same. If you, if you will, you may not want this, but if you're interested in this kind of stuff, the theological word for this is theophany. You might recognize Greek word theos, phaneo, phaneo means appearance. So it's, a, it's an appearance, a pre-incarnate appearance. And there are, there are numerous examples in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord shows up and there's worship of, of him, you know what I mean, of the angel. And so we know this is not just an angel, it's the angel of the Lord, meaning the angel of Yahweh, Yahweh's angel, which is uh, a theophany. And I, I see no reason why this would not be the same thing here. Definite article is there, the angel of the Lord. Continuing in verse, uh, where am I, 12. Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. In other words test of faith is what are you holding back? Abraham passed the test. And he passed the test. It's just, but again, I want you to, I want you to connect the language in verse 5. We're going to go worship the Lord, but we'll be back. Which Hebrews eleven nineteen tells us why. How, we just don't know enough about all this. But you have a clarity, and we know this in the Old Testament. They had a clear understanding of the resurrection. They believed in the afterlife. So everyone's just saying, I offer my son, God will bring you back to life. We'll be back. That's just staggering faith. It really is. It's the kind of faith that God wants every one of us around this table to have. An implicit trust in the Lord. Amen. From the perspective, and this this is where our faith our faith grows, but from the perspective of eternity, God knows what He's doing. God's providentially in control. Even when evil things happen to me, He can bring good out of that. 
there's a song where he leads me I will follow and that requires our faith and we're at different stages in our faith we're not we're not here and it's easy to hero worship you know characters of the Bible but we may be at a similar stage in our lives where it's just as great a step of faith to trust the Lord where he is leading us where we are now as it was for Abraham and by that growth because it's not a pole vault it's a it's a progression of steps toward in our faith that we can realize that we too can grow up in our faith as we trust mm-hmm. him as he leads us Absolutely. in our own trials they may not be like this but they may be just as significant and, and large Absolutely. in our own personal lives Absolutely. perhaps don't, I mean well, and I think as, you know, I'll, I'll take on the one metaphor you used there. Our, our walk with the Lord is not a sprint. It's not a hundred-yard dash. It's a marathon. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a walk and a commitment to the Lord that's based on trust, and I walk with him in trust. I don't, I mean, you know, you know what, what the reason I'm saying it is. I don't know where I'm going, but God does. And what I mean by that is it doesn't mean we don't plan, don't strategize, that's not what I mean. But you you and I have great plans, very intricate strategies and everything, and it all blows apart in a year. But God knows the future. So the, the Abraham walked by faith. And as you and I grow in, as we've said thousands of times in this class, as we grow in the process of sanctification, one of God's goals for us is that we grow in faith. We grow in our capacity to trust him. And it is so easy for us to say that. It's easy for me to say that in a comfortable room on a warm summer day when not knowing what tomorrow, when that proposition that we walk with God in faith is going to be tested. And for some of you, and and even including myself, we have no idea the degree to which that test might occur. I think a lot of young Christians or even some of us have been trying for a while don't realize, like, we we're planning on going to church and then something comes up, maybe we, maybe we go and we, we push through whatever happened and we go to church. You know, maybe the wife's sick somewhere we can yep. stay now we just go to church by ourselves. Yep. But I think that affects our life in two or three years down the line. That one sermon could affect your life in so, three or five years. And we didn't even know it. Yeah, yeah. You know, okay. and then, but then something happens in your life Yep. Way down the line, and you can go back to that day and that day, mm-hmm. that message, or coming to this class, mm-hmm. that message helped you in five years. That's right. That's so right. when you have those opportunities, you've got to really go. I mean, when, when this opportunity with Dr. Edwards here on Wednesday afternoons, um, or Wednesday mornings for my class, you got to go, because if you miss <laughs> it, you might be screwed up your life five, six years down the line. You didn't even know. He makes the Just, yeah. Well, in in all of in all of the things of our lives, and I boy, I'm telling you, I am learning this in a, a very fresh new way right now. It is always, 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 always worthwhile to put your trust in the Lord, mm-hmm. not in people, because mm-hmm. people, no matter how good they are, and people will let you down. They can they can disappoint you. They can 
Well, I, you know all those, those, but God doesn't. God will never, God always, always, this is really, you have to say this in faith, but God always has our best interests at heart. Always. In one of my other Bible studies, uh, a really neat couple. He's 75, she's 74. Um, they went to Israel with me. They're just really, really a neat couple. He's been retired from Union Pacific. Uh, about a week and a half ago, he was driving north to a ministry which he's been in for years, and a huge dump truck ran a red light and smashed into his SUV. He rolled it. He was killed instantly. 75 years old. And his wife, I mean, I just, as soon as, somebody emailed me, I think, one of, I won't give you his name, but I think he was in an accident. I thought, no, I just talked to him. I mean, this, I see him Wednesday, I just talked to him. No, it probably isn't, but that's an unusual name. So I thought, oh, it was, it's who it was. And so, you know, I saw her, I went to the, to the service on Saturday, or on Sunday, excuse me. And uh, I saw her, and she is, I mean, this is hard. But you know, the very first, as I hugged you, know the first thing she says, Jesus is my Lord. He's my Savior. I trust him. You know, that, this lady lost her husband of 39 years. And, you know, in a terrible accident. When he left that morning to go to this ministry, where he served for many years, she expected to see him at lunch. She expected to see him, you know, and they had planned some things. That that day, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Noel went home to be with Jesus. Now you can say, well, it was horrible. A terrible accident it was. But did that slip up on God's blind side? Did he miss that? No, everything in the Bible tells us you can't conclude that. It's hard. Why? I mean, you say, Lord, that's terrible. But from the perspective of eternity, he's with Jesus. Should we pray to get him back? No, that's a selfish prayer. Now, I don't mean to sound so crass there. But he's with Jesus. I want him back for that reason. And that's what Linda was saying on Sunday to me. I trust Jesus. He's my Savior and my Lord. I've walked with him almost my whole life. Tears, absolutely. Hurt, yes. But trust is there. That what Abraham is teaching us here, that it is always, always worthwhile to trust the Lord. Now look at the, I really want to finish this. This would be horrible to leave this hanging. Let me finish it. In Abraham, verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of this place Yahweh Jireh. The Lord will provide. I'm going to write that on the board. It's just one of those. It's the Hebrew, but that's just a great. It's called Yahweh Jireh. The Lord will provide. What did he mean by that? Remember what he said to Isaac as they were walking up the mountain? My son, God will provide. Verse 8. Now what does he deem? He names Moriah Yahweh 
as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be, future tense, shall be provided. Now, that is pregnant with enormous prophetic meaning. Because 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 tells us that that little patch of land that King David bought from Aruna would become the site on which the temple was built. And 2 Chronicles 3, 1 tells us it's Mount Moriah. And Golgotha is on Moriah. So when you read that, on the mount of Yahweh, it shall be provided. My goodness, that has enormous sweep of meaning for all that God's doing redemptively. Let me tell you a little story. When Peggy and I were in, uh, in seminary in, in Texas, um, uh, I mean, there's hard, hard years. It was really, I don't know how we made it through some of that. It was really difficult financially and the stress and all that, but but we, we developed some really good friendships. And one of the guys, uh, he and his family, that were, became our friends, uh, they had three children, just amazing, in seminary. And, I mean, that was a real test of their faith. I mean, it was huge because uh, you're trying to raise three kids while you're in seminary. I mean, it's just, and they just watched the Lord provide incredibly for them. And so, so what, what Chris did is, in his family, they had a little Jehovah Jireh box. And what they did is every every time every time they had a prayer request, you know, whatever the nature of the request would be, they'd write out a piece of paper and put it in the box. And in the early weeks of January, right after holidays, Christmas and all that, with their children, they opened they opened the box and read it. What what an amazing way to teach your kids about faith. Because what do you think happened? As they opened the box and read what they put in there last January, God provided. God provided. God provided. And Chris said almost every single piece of paper that had a request in there in that 12-month period, God answered. So, I mean, we did something like that with our kids for, for a period of time as well. But this is the Jehovah Jireh box. God will provide. It's materially, emotionally, financially, physically, all of the dimensions of our life. Is God still Jehovah Jireh? Please say yes, because yes, he yes, is. Yes, yes. So, I mean, there are just so many levels at which you can examine this tremendously important story. Let me add one more. Abraham and Isaac, it's approximately 4,000 years ago, about 2,000 B.C., give or take a little. 2,000 years later, another father and another son would walk up the same mountain. Now, you know what I'm doing with this, don't you? That father and that son is God the Father and God the Son. But when they get to the top of that mountain, that son will die, and there will be no substitute for him. He is the substitute. 
He's the substitute for sin. He dies in our mm. place. Breaks the power of sin. Breaks the power of death. That's why in this statement, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided, as I mentioned a moment, that is pregnant with enormous meaning for what will happen and what God is doing. So, I mean, I... I preached this a couple of times, so I threw in some sermon illustrations too. But it's just a very powerful chapter. I'm not done with it yet, but I mean, it's a, it's a really significant chapter, and it just it 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 has all kinds of connections with other things going on in the Bible. Okay, you with me? Any questions, Jim? I'm gonna ask the question about him. He calls him the Lord will provide. You said Jehovah Jireh. Yeah. Did um, did Abraham's faith in some way provide a pathway to the lordship? In other words, uh, I mean, salvation takes place as justification. Right. 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 Declaration of righteousness and all that. Right. And then there's that period in our lives where there's this transformation mm-hmm. as God works in our life. Um. But in a lot of ways, the willingness to yield ourselves to lordship comes as a result of what we see God working faithfully in our lives. Some of us just faith. We don't see the working. We just commit ourselves to his character. Right. Well, um, let me say, let me respond this way. That he uses the word Yahweh or Lord I get isn't as significant as although it is significant. It's what he does, which evidences this isn't just a word or a title. This is deeply meaningful to him. He looks at Yahweh as his Lord, in the way you and I think of Lord in the, in, in the 21st century, and as his master, as his uh, as his his savior and provider. I mean, it's just. It's 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 an amazing. I keep using that word, but it's an amazing demonstration of a deep, deep, deep commitment and trust in God, and what Lord really means four thousand years ago, and what it means today. And I, that's why. And uh, and I, I guess I'm going to have to quit here. But that's why the Bible and this is in the New Testament all over the place. Because Abraham is mentioned again and again and again. Abraham is the paradigm for faith. Abraham is the model for faith. And this chapter, it seems to me, is one of the real reasons for that. I mean, there are a lot to, because, I mean, you start with Genesis 12 until you get here in Genesis 22. I mean, every chapter virtually is filled with issues of faith. Are you going to trust me or not, Abraham? Sarah comes along, look, take Hagar. That's how we're going to get the promise. And Abraham says, okay, good idea. What does that say? Abraham. You didn't trust me enough. And the consequences of that are going to be enormous. And that, you and I see the evidence of that. You see what I'm saying? So every chapter is filled with faith. But now you're at the point, you're at the epitome of one of the great examples of faith. And that's why the very first verse of chapter 22, God tests Abraham. What's he testing? Oh, his character, but he's testing his faith. It's just, it's incredible. Well, I'm not done, but the, the, the God on my wrist says that I must stop. So verse 15 
Help me to remember that. I want to start with verse 15 next week. Because we're not done with this. But God does something here that he rarely does in the Bible. And that's where I want to pick up next week. Okay? Okay, okay, thank you. Let's pray here. Father, thank you for this extraordinary passage of Scripture. Thank you for these men. I'm so thankful that there are so many here this afternoon because this is a passage of Scripture that we need to hear, we need to be reminded of. And we certainly see why throughout the Bible Abraham is considered the model of faith, paradigm of faith, the father of those who believe in one place he's called. He really, Lord, trusted you in the way in which he responds to you. Here am I. When he responds to his son, here am I, son, God will provide. And then after you provided, he names the place Yahweh Jireh. The Lord will provide. In my own life, Lord, drill that deep into my heart and my mind that you do provide, you do care. And to each one of these men's hearts and their minds, drill that deep into our soul that you are worthy of our trust. And only eternity often explains how you work through things, tragedies like what happened to my friend in that terrible accident. But you are still in control. And his life and ministry and service were over, and you took him home. It's just the way in which it occurs. Often we can't explain these things. But we trust you. We trust your goodness. And Abraham did that. One of the great examples of faith. One of the examples, great examples of you providing. And on that mountain, as the Bible says, you provide again and again and again. The ongoing continual atonement for sin in Jerusalem, in the temple, and that final once-for-all provision with the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in that same mountain. We praise you, Lord. You are a good God. Grow our faith. Grow our capacity to trust you because you are good. And in that spirit, we go and separate in our separate ways. Take care of us, watch over us, and enable us to really represent you well. In Christ's name, amen. 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 Amen.